Hello and welcome. <clears throat> You're still getting over this cold. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is going to join me at the bottom of this hour. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 487-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Glad to have you with me this morning. Listen, I, I there's impeachment stuff we need to talk about. But before we get to the impeachment stuff, uh, there's other stuff I want to talk about, and he, I'd let me let me delve into this right now. Frankly, um, he, this is something that happened the other day. The story continues to take on a life of its own, and it aggravates me. And I'm frankly, I'm tired of talking about impeachment. I need to talk about impeachment. Impeachment is the news. Uh, I, I pride myself on talking to you about the news, but this is news too. So let, let's deal with this instead. Uh, a, a part of a cultural moment where we are in this country. You know, there was a there's a case before the U.S. Supreme Court about Montana schools. In Montana, there's a scholar. Well, there was a scholarship, and the the scholarship program allowed students to go to a private school to improve their education. And the Department of Revenue in Maine, or I'm sorry, Montana, it's in Montana, the the Department of Revenue in Montana ruled that because the state constitution has a Blaine Amendment, kids uh, kids who wanted to go to a private Christian school would be prohibited from using the money. You could only go to a private secular school. Well, the case was appealed to the Montana Supreme Court. Montana has what's called a Blaine Amendment. Many states have Blaine Amendments. Blaine Amendments were passed in the 1800s by an an anti-Catholic politician. I think his name was James Blaine. uh, Because as Catholics came to this country, their, their kids were going into Catholic schools. They weren't going into public school institutions. And so the the, um, the Blaine amendments were passed in various states saying no money could be used uh, to advance religion. And they determined that going to a Catholic school advanced religion. Therefore, Catholic students uh, could not uh, – Catholic schools could not get government money even though they were educating kids. Uh, these amendments have taken on a life of their own as as the country has become more hostile to uh, sectarianism, more hostile to Christianity. In fact, Blaine amendments have taken on a, a larger life, but a number of members of the Supreme Court, and not just the conservatives, even Elena Kagan uh, and uh, Stephen Breyer, have been hostile to keeping Blaine amendments. The problem with this Montana case is the Montana case got to the Supreme Court of Montana, and Montana says, no, you can't actually use the school scholarship money for uh, private Christian schools. And in fact, we're going to declare it unconstitutional altogether. You can't use this money for any private school, sectarian or secular. Well, the Christians have appealed, saying the only reason the Montana Supreme Court threw it out altogether was because of the Christian schools. And they're they're having that case before the Supreme Court. And I, that sets the stage for you, just so you understand, there, there is some latent hostility to, um, to Christianity out there in government institutions and in constitutions because of the Blaine Amendment. But what we're seeing now around the country is actually a, a real hostility to Christian education from secularists. Uh, so take, take the, this is the story where I want to head to. Fifth Third Bank. I, I don't. I don't know that we have Fifth Third Bank here in Georgia, where I am. Uh, we certainly have Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo and Fifth Third Bank have decided to stop funding an education program in Florida. In Florida, Florida has a program very much like 
uh, what Georgia has, uh, where you can get a tax credit for giving money to an education scholarship fund. It is a tax credit scholarship. So in Georgia, for example, if I give $1,000 to an education scholarship fund, I get a $1,000 tax credit. So if my tax bill is $1,000, I don't pay the bill because I've already paid $1,000 to the tax scholarship program. And then a family, a poor family that qualifies can take that scholarship money and use it to send their kid to any private school of their choice. So, for example, you've got a poor kid in, um, well, let's just say Athens, Georgia. There's a Catholic school in Athens, Georgia. There's a poor kid in a failing Clark County school. The poor family can apply for the scholarship uh, for the for the amount of money to go to the Catholic school. And the state will use this education scholarship money and allow that child to go to the Catholic school to get a better education. Or let's take it in, in a situation where I am. Uh, we've got a... a private Christian school that my church runs, First Presbyterian Day School in Macon, Georgia. A, a poor child can get the scholarship money from the state. They want to not go to a failing public school in middle Georgia. They use that money, and, and it gets them into the private Christian school, First Pres. Florida has a very similar program, and in Florida, a lot of corporations contribute to uh, the tax credit scholarship. Two of those major corporations that have uh, that have contributed to the tax scholarship are Fifth Third Bank and Wells Fargo. And Fifth Third Bank and Wells Fargo have decided that they are going to end participation in the scholarship program. And do you know why? Let me read you the key paragraph. An Orlando Sentinel analysis of a thousand private religious schools that accepted state funding vouchers found that 83 of them barred the alphabet gang. So 83 of them barred LGBTQIAATP whatever students, sometimes the children of uh, the alphabet gang parents from attending the school. 73 additional schools said being gay or transgender was sinful but didn't explicitly say how the stance affected admissions. So you get that out of a thousand private schools participate, private religious schools participating, 83 of them insist on their Christian values being adhered to. Now, whether you agree or disagree, it is actually a matter of Christian orthodoxy that homosexuality is a sin and marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, I realize there are a lot of churches out there. We've got a big one near me now that does gay marriage. I realize that, uh, but you have to redact parts of the Bible to get there. Uh, the Homosexuality is a sin in the Bible, whether you like that or not. It just is. It was in the Old Testament. It is consistently attributed all the way through to the New Testament. And you can say you don't believe it, you don't buy it, um, that's fine. But the Bible says God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. And by God, he's been very consistent between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, you, you know, there's that, um, oh, what was the guy's name? He, he wrote the book on on dating and basically said marriage, Josh, somebody, uh, courtship. He's he's uh, left his wife and he's now written that his, his values are no longer compatible with Christianity. And at least there are a lot of people who have tried to twist Christianity and say, oh, yeah, this fits. 
this guy at least was intellectually honest by saying, no, actually, uh, on the plain reading of Scripture, it, it doesn't fit, and so I can't be a Christian because I, I this is no longer compatible with my values. Thank you to this guy, Josh, what's his name, for at least being intellectually honest and, and braver than the people who say, oh, yeah, you can fit this into Christianity despite the plain language of the Old and New Testament. And, you know, for those of you saying, well, you know, the Old Testament says don't have tattoos and don't eat shellfish. That, th- those are the shibboleths of the damned. Uh, those are the things people who don't understand Christianity say. Um, you, you know, the, the New Testament updates parts of the Old Testament and parts of the Old Testament remain consistent. Uh, the, the ceremonial law and the civil law of Israel no longer apply. The moral law still applies. Uh, the Old Testament prohibitions on, on adultery and drunkenness and homosexuality apply. They're rewritten in Corinthians. Uh, Jesus talks about marriage between a man and a woman. You can disagree with this, but but don't try to say, oh, well, I'm a Christian and I believe this stuff. That's fine. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. No big deal. But in the, the plain meaning of the faith, you can't. And so what's happening here in Florida is 89, 83 schools are being targeted by the left because they're Christian schools that teach Christian values. And the left does not believe these Christians should be able to participate in a state scholarship program as long as they maintain their Christian orthodoxy. And now Fifth Third Bank and Wells Fargo have decided they're going to join the secular left and not support a scholarship program that helps poor kids because horror of horrors, there are 83 schools that participated in this program and one or two students might actually wind up in one of those schools and horror of horrors, they might actually be Christians. Josh Harris. Yes, thank you. Philip Philip sends me a note. Josh Harris, that's the guy's name. Uh, he, he wrote the book on courtship, and he's now apparently he's marched in a pride event, and he said Christianity actually is very clear. Homosexuality is a sin, and therefore I can't be a Christian. And, and God bless him for his intellectual honesty. I disagree with him. I, 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 I actually pray for him because I think it's the only path to salvation, and he's walked away from it because he thinks it's incompatible with his moral view, but at least he's honest about it. You've got this Matthew Vine kid who, who wrote, oh, well, actually, we've been misreading the Bible for 2,000 years, and 2,000 years of orthodoxy is all wrong. I don't intend to start the, the show with, with, with religious broadcasting and, and culture war stuff, but it is very interesting to me how quickly Fortune 500 companies are willing to use their clout to pressure churches to abandon their orthodoxy in order to get money. And that's one of the things we find more and more of this country. It, it's not just in orthodoxy. It's across the board. How many people are willing to abandon their convictions for money? Uh, our society is ripe with people selling out. The number of people who have accused me of selling out uh, for supporting the president, I, I actually legitimately have decided, given the choice between him and them, I'll go with him in 2020. He's done a lot of stuff I like. Uh, and there are a lot of people who can't rationalize that, oh, my gosh, Erickson may have changed his mind for a number of reasons. It's no, he must be getting money. And I can't really blame them because it's a pervasive attitude. They're, they're certainly wrong, but it is a pervasive thing that's happening now. And Fortune 500 companies are leveraging their cloud in this country, Wells Fargo and Fifth Third Bank now, punishing Christian students. And there's not a dispute as to, as to these banks doing that, punishing Christian students, punishing poor students in particular. This is a program that allows poor kids to get better educations. But the gay rights movement has decided that if poor kids want to improve their education by going to a Christian school, they should be punished for doing that. And that goes back to the Supreme Court case today. 
the nation has to decide, can we accommodate each other's views? You know, the, the very first part of the First Amendment, if you listen to reporters, you would think that the First Amendment, the very first thing that it says is uh, that you, you – the freedom of the press. But that's not actually it. Uh, what is the very first clause of the First Amendment? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. If you're allowing a kid to go to a school that is religious, you're not establishing a religion. You're allowing that child to do what? The second portion of the First Amendment, prohibiting the free exercise thereof. If you're telling a poor kid, if you want state money, you have to not go to a religious school. That is the Congress taking a side when it comes to religion as opposed to letting the parents decide. Thankfully, the Supreme Court is headed in the right direction this here, and even Elena Kagan, to a degree, seems to be headed in this direction, one of the liberals on the Supreme Court, that, you know, the government's not imposing religion on anyone by letting a parent send their kid with taxpayer dollars to religious school. What is happening, though, is there's increasing hostility from secularists, including Fortune 500 companies and the Alphabet Gang, to anyone wanting to raise their kid as a Christian, that, that somehow they're bad as opposed to they just disagree. And what's happened here is is we in society, on both sides of the aisle, by the way, as everybody's become more tribal, we've lost the ability to respect each other's differences in areas we disagree. And frankly, when people want to be defined by their sexuality, it's very easy to see how they then can view someone as hating them because they are in a Christian denomination that says the way they define themselves is sinful. They don't think they're a sinner. They think they were born this way. And if God makes everybody, then clearly they were born this way. And it's, frankly, it's a failure of the church uh, that we're even having this argument. But the, the fact of the matter is we are seeing increasing hostility to people of faith in this country. And it's not because Christians are trying to impose their values on others. It's because others are trying to make Christians abandon their values. And here now come major corporations, major banks, Wells Fargo and Fifth Third Bank, joining the mob against the Christian in this country. And that's why we should all hope that the Supreme Court very forcefully defends the First Amendment and the right of kids to go to a religious school, even with a state scholarship. Because they're coming for this stuff. It is absurd to me. And, you know, this ties into the faith-based adoption effort here in Georgia. The Speaker of the House, David Ralston, killing uh, a a commission that might protect faith-based adoption agencies. Because faith-based adoption agencies don't want to adopt two people outside their faith. And they should be able to do that. And what's happening in secular states is they're shutting down faith-based adoption agencies because the faith-based adoption agencies might say, hey, marriage is between a man and a woman. We can only only allow adoption to a married heterosexual couple. So they would limit the number of, of entities that can help people adopt kids because they've decided to prioritize uh, gay rights over adopting kids. In the same way, we're now being told in this country, Wells Fargo and Fifth Third Bank and other corporations are now telling us we've got to prioritize gay rights over kids getting a better education. When does the madness end? Because I got to tell you, a group of people who were willing to use their bodies as street lamps to light the streets of Rome 2,000 years ago when the Roman emperor was setting their bodies ablaze on crucified crosses as street lights at night in Rome, they're not going to fold on this issue. Some of them will. Some of them have walked away from actual faith and twisted the faith and distorted the faith, but there will always be a very large segment. And by the way, it is globally several billion people, and the left 
wants them driven from society. This is why so many evangelicals are willing to support the president, even though they don't like him. They recognize that the left is an existential threat to their ability to practice their faith, to, in the words of the First Amendment, engage in the free exercise of their religion. You can call in if you like. The phone lines are open, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. At the bottom of this hour, Lieutenant Governor of Georgia Jeff Duncan is going to join me. Uh, He is pushing education scholarships here in Georgia that actually— my in opening of the show was not tied to that, but it actually is relevant to that uh, as corporations. And, you know, by the way, you do need to understand here that what's actually going on is a lot of these corporations have been invaded by progressive activists uh, in they're internally now making a lot of decisions. And as a result they can easily be persuaded to drop anything that doesn't share of progressive values and not support conservatives. The, the, I, I got to tell you, the number of advertisers over time uh, who have decided they don't want to advertise with conservatives, don't want to advertise here, uh, is, is actually very interesting to me to see because they're not progressive groups. But it is progressives internally who are making the decisions. Uh, you know, so I'm a longtime customer of Harry's Razors. I mean, I was using Harry's Razors when they first got started. And a while back, um, they stopped advertising with me. I still use Harry's Razors. They're still a fine product. Uh, but it was progressive complaints that had them walk away. I, I Frankly, I, I they're a good razor company. I used them yesterday. I didn't shave today. I like them, don't want to badmouth them, but it is easy for the left these days to bully corporations into adhering to a secular worldview that is very hostile to religion. And that's something we as a society are going to have to deal with. Um, And, you know, let's just take this to a larger scale here. Take the Southern Baptist. I I grew up Southern Baptist. I actually go to a PCA church. Um, I I put the fun and fundamentalist when it it comes to the PCA. My my preacher, so when when I was a kid, Went to Mercer University from from rural Louisiana, and I thought, huh, went to the First Baptist Church in in, uh, Jackson, Louisiana. I'll go check out the First Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia. And went in, and they had a woman in the pulpit, and she was talking about how we were too scriptural and needed to be more sacred. Oh, boy. Uh, that didn't strike me as right. So I went home and I called my preacher. I said, Brother Joe, what do I do? What do I do? The, they had a woman in the pulpit saying we needed to get out of the Bibles and and, and reconnect to our spirit and some such. And <laughs> he says, find a church with the letters PCA. I would be one, but for the sprinkling. And so I wound up at a, at a, at a PCA church and, and haven't actually gone back, although I'm currently enrolled in a Southern Baptist seminary, uh, transferred out of RTS and, and probably going to transfer back to RTS uh, when I have some time to actually go back to class. But nonetheless, um, it, there there really is a, a, a growing hostility towards people of faith in this country. We're going to have to find some way as a country to deal with this because you're not going to get people of faith to abandon multiple thousands of years of orthodoxy uh, in favor of, of passing trends uh, and, and not just on the, the alphabet gang issues. There are plenty of other issues out there as well. And it's, it's kind of striking to me to see a lot of people who purportedly are people of faith who are perfectly happy to have the state and corporations turn on people of faith. But go back to the Southern Baptist. Uh, you know, the, the Southern Baptist Mission Board was the first charitable group to get to South Georgia 
after the hurricane after Hurricane Michael. They were the first charitable group to get into New Orleans after Katrina. Uh, the Southern Baptists do incredible work going where even corporations won't go. And why should they be punished by the state for helping so many people and helping kids get good education? It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Joining me by phone before he starts another busy day at the state capitol, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, welcome. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. How about yourself? Doing well. We got uh, just, uh, I guess, a little under 25 minutes till we get started up in the Senate, and I always start on time at 10 o'clock. Well, I, I will try not to keep you then. So out of the no, gate, no you got an, an op-ed uh, in the Rome News Tribune. Uh, I, I see this on education. This is National School Choice Week. I was actually just talking about um, down in Florida, corporations pulling out of the, the Florida scholarship program because Christian schools might get some of the money. And, and here you've got an op-ed uh, wanting to expand options for parents in this state. Uh, and you note, by the way, in here, uh, I, and I'm glad to see this data because I was trying to find it, and here it was. The tax credit scholarship program that Georgia has has 13,895 scholarships a year for kids to go to private school, and we've still got a huge demand for from parents to escape failing schools. Well, thanks for your compliment on the op-ed. We're really excited. I know it's, it's run all around the state in a number of communities. And, you know, the interesting part, I like to start school choice conversations because too often I think it's a polarizing conversation uh, and, and I don't think that I don't think it really is, is, is my three kids. Uh, my I have a 17 year old, a 14 year old or a nine year old. They're all in public schools. Uh, I'm a product of the public schools. My wife is, too. We went to high school together uh, at Chattahoochee High School in Alpharetta. Uh, and so I look at this not as as a competition, but as an opportunity to to center the education around the child and the child's needs and the family situation. And so looking for opportunities to explore best opportunity to put the, ki- the the children in the best possible position for success is what I'm all about. Now, a part of this comes with increasing hostility in the state uh, from some quarters towards charter schools. And there you there are now, I, I guess we're going to have a, a Senate candidate on the, the left that wants to shut down the charter school program. And a, we're seeing more and more hostility even among Democratic presidential campaigns that charter school programs take money out of private or take money out of public schools. And if we want to improve public schools, we need to force parents to send their kids there. Well, look, I. I hear so many great stories of, you know, families as I travel around the state uh, from students themselves, from, you know, kids that have, have gone on to the next level of education that really talk about, you know, so, some of the opportunities that charter schools have created, the environments that they've built. But look, there's incredible public school systems all around the state. Uh, you know, I, I, I get to firsthand talk about the one in Forsyth County. They're doing an amazing job educating the kids. They're doing an amazing job of being really efficient with the dollars they're getting and the narrative that they really kind of, or the atmosphere that they create amongst the students wanting to get the, you know, everybody to the next level. And whether that's a, a job the day after you graduate from high school or going into the military or a two-year degree or a four-year degree, we, I want every community to have that opportunity because at the end of the day, the greatest gift a child gets early on is a quality K-12 education. The data points back to this in a million different ways. I mean, I think last time we were on, I talked about the foster kids that age out at 18. Only 11% of them even have a high school degree or a GED. I mean, there's no opportunity for success if we can't get the basic blocking and tackling, 
in K through 12. So looking for a chance to make sure every child has an opportunity to get that quality education is what we're fighting for here. Now, one of the things you mentioned is, is, and this is a line from your op-ed, I continue to urge state lawmakers to embrace additional options, including a new form of school choice known as education savings accounts, which can be customized to a child's education needs. Can you kind of explain what the, the ESA would be? Well, it's, it's just an opportunity to, to have dollars as a family and focus those in on that child's education so that it, it's a, the dollars are able to follow the child. And, and, and you know, so important for that. It, it's not as a means to, to shortchange a, a community or whatnot. It just empowers uh, the family to have the opportunities of choice. And, and it's a tool. It's, it's a, look, it's a broad discussion. This issue is very interesting because it's, it's not necessarily a party lines issue. It's, it's not necessarily a rural versus metro issue. It's, it's community to community and representative to representative and senator to senator. It, it is a very personal issue for each and every person because at the end of the day, we're all kind of products of the educational process that we went through in our communities. And so uh, we will continue to have the discussion. Uh, we're going to continue to fight hard. I'll tell you this, Eric. The, the future in Georgia will be even brighter if we continue to improve the way we deliver education in this state in 159 counties and all the cities and all the other departments around and all the different communities in, in the state. If we're going to be who we want to be, education has got to continue to be an area of focus for us. Now, there is, there's ample data out there, whether you look at New Orleans or the District of Columbia or Chicago, that we keep pouring more and more money into public schools, and it's increasingly clear money isn't necessarily improve, more money doesn't necessarily improve education. Although you look at a place like Forsyth County uh, that has the best public schools in the state and is now considered the wealthiest county in the state, uh, there seems to be a correlation there among, well, two-parent, nuclear households, kids going to school. And is there any effort to, to address, I guess, the, the cultural problems that come with education where you've got kids waking up with one parent having to go to work, the kids taking care of themselves, getting themselves to school, and, and teachers almost feeling like they're, they're babysitters as opposed to educators now? Well, so I'll give you a personal insight into the Forsyth County mix, and, and I don't know if this number is 100% accurate. I, I know that a couple of years ago it was. But we have some of the lowest property taxes in Forsyth County of all the metro counties. So I believe the system is being very efficient with how they're spending those dollars. But here's where I think they're getting it really right, is they're using technology to, to engage the students, to connect the parents and the teachers. Uh, you know, I think about that single mom trying to work, a, you know, two jobs to, to get through, uh, you know, get through the day and being able to get their kids off to school. You know, the utilization of technology, it, just like every business in the world is figuring out, it allows you to be more efficient and more effective. So using that opportunity for it, maybe a teacher to, to have a quick video conference with the parent. Uh, maybe it's an opportunity like we have to be able to see exactly what our kids are doing in schools and what they got on that test earlier in the day or what their schedule and calendar looks like. Those are opportunities for success that I think are a part of this 21st century you know, next step for us, not just in the economy with technology, but in the way we deliver education. I mean, the, the milestone tests are, are a prime example of that. You know, looking for opportunities to empower the teachers to be more nimble, you know, through the school year to be able to make a course adjustment. What if a kid's above grade and needs a little more on their plate every day? What if a kid's a little below grade and needs a little less on their plate or needs a little more reinforcement? To me, we need to give those teachers that opportunity to have a quicker, more nimble process with technology to, to identify that. Um, and so I think those are the improvements we need to make. Um, you know, technology, I harp on it everywhere I go. But the, the private sector is figuring it out because they've got shareholders to report to. 
But I think we're starting to realize in, in, in the government piece is that technology allows us to be more effective and more efficient. Well, um, that means do our job better and do it for less. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this with teachers because I, I, I have a lot of teachers who listen uh, during the summer and then during the evening on, the, on their way home on my other show. I, and I hear the number one complaint I hear from teachers all the time is they went in to educate kids and instead they feel like they're bureaucrats and test proctors and they don't actually get to teach anymore. Yeah, look, I, my sister is an educator. She's a vice principal now in a school system. Uh, she has, has a great career of kind of teaching at almost every level. Um, and and, and here's, here's what I know. No teacher wakes up in college or going to college and says, I want to study to be a teacher because I want to get rich. Right? They do it because they have a gift to be able to teach. They have a passion to work with youth, and they're good at it. And that's what they want to do every single day when they walk in the classroom. They want to educate. They don't want to be a, a proctor. They don't want to be a report reader. They want to be able to take those kids and navigate them through that curriculum in the nine months they have them in their classroom. And that, to me, is the ultimate – that's the ultimate goal here is to be able to empower our educators to do exactly what they love doing. Well, listen, I, I, I'm glad that you're pursuing this, and I know there have been hiccups in the past on the Republican side, even in the Senate, and I hope you're able to rally a coalition to make some changes because some certainly need to come. I, I'm always struck by the number of people who just want to do the same things we've always done and, and give them more money as opposed to trying to innovate. Yeah, we're going to work hard, and this is a big initiative of ours. I mean, I, every speech I ever give, I talk about K-12 being the greatest gift we give a child. It is. And we need to make sure that we that we continue to improve that gift. Thank you very much. Well, look, okay. I, I let me like, I, let me thread this needle carefully for you before you get out of here. I, I know you've endorsed uh, Kelly Leffler in the past. It, do you have any thoughts on how this is y- y- election maybe shaping up? <laughs> yes. Well, I, I was I was on stage uh, when the governor appointed uh, Kelly Leffler. I've gotten to know Kelly Leffler uh, throughout this process. I mean, what an incredible you know, story to, to where she's at today, uh, just personally successful. And, uh, you know, she has just got a, you know, a very, very strong conservative platform. It's really been neat to watch. And, and, and you know, my kids and I, you know, and of course, we, you know, we, we go home and we're watching all this impeachment stuff going on on the TV, when, you know, after dinner and whatnot. And to watch how hard she's fighting for our president, to watch, you know, her conservative values, you know, just kind of really continue to, 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 to be manifested. But, you know, look, here, here, here's the elephant in the room on the election. Doug Collins is a really good guy. I really like Doug. Mm-hmm. I've always liked Doug. I just, you know, he called me two days ago. And we had a great discussion. He's a really, really good guy. Um, but, you know, I, I support Kelly Leffler. Um, I hope she continues to, to, uh, to you know, look, she's going to bring home. She's going to get to cast a vote in a day or two uh, to acquit our president of, the, of this, you know, impeachment sham. Uh, I'm proud to see how hard she's fighting for him. Look, at, at the end of this, however all this shakes out, uh, if Doug Collins is in a runoff against a Democrat, I'll be the first guy to jump in line and, and put a Doug Collins yard sign in there, and, and I'll even get the kids out there knocking on doors. But uh, uh, I'm proud to support Kelly, and uh, she has such a great track record. And I, I, I continue to, to be excited as Georgians get to meet her 
uh, as she get, you know, her limited opportunities during this impeachment stuff to get back home. Well, look, I, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot there, but thank you. Cause I feel the same way. I love Doug Collins too. And, and hate we're at this point. And, and if he's in a runoff, I will certainly be out knocking on doors for him. And I appreciate your leadership on this education issue very much. Good luck to you today. I don't want to keep you cause I know you got to get down to the floor and, and bang a gavel and get people going, but uh, anything we can do to help here and, and with the audience to, to help you with this education stuff. Cause I know the audience strongly believes in what you're doing. Well, just, uh, yeah, just keep fighting hard. And look, you know, these, these good policy ideas will win because we stick to the facts, we stick to the figures, we stay away from the rhetoric, we stay away from throwing stones at each other. Uh, we just simply stay on, on message that this is an opportunity to put education, uh, put the child at the center of the education, and that ultimately is the goal. Fantastic. Congre- uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, thank you very much for joining us here. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan uh, for, from Forsyth County uh, was in the state house, moved over to the state Senate, and education is his big thing. And then, and he and the governor have been tag teaming a lot of these issues together. I got to tell you, and I've mentioned this before about the lieutenant governor. One of the things that I find very remarkable, and to his credit, is last year there was an education scholarship initiative, and it was being blocked by some of the Republicans. And in the past, when Casey Cagle was lieutenant governor, and the Republicans did not have the vote to pursue one of these popular initiatives the they would never bring the legislation to the floor so the republicans wouldn't expose themselves for showing they actually didn't support something that the public found popular and last year jeff duggan forced the education issue to the floor and it was republicans who didn't cough up enough votes to get it passed it was a popular educational scholarship reform program and and here he is he's bringing it back this year and he's going to make them make them do it all over again and and that's what leadership looks like and that's why I'm impressed with him as the lieutenant governor. He's he's a great guy generally, and his heart is really into education reform. And we can't just keep throwing money at public schools. And when the situation's not getting better, we got to provide some alternatives to kids. So I'm glad he's out there doing what he's doing. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, thanks very much for joining us. A word on the recipes. Uh, I, I changed it up. I decided not to send out the pizza dough recipe. I, instead, I'm sending out my mom's red beans and rice recipe, and it's already set. It'll go out at noon today. And the reason I'm sending it out is because I am sick and and I need spicy food. And you can make red beans and rice spicy. It's a You can make it vegetarian. I use bacon drippings and sausage, but you can make it vegetarian if you're into vegetarian food. But the recipe is already set. It'll go out at noon today. So text the word recipe to 33777. You will get my mom's red beans and rice recipe. You know, before I was allowed to, to leave home from Louisiana uh, to go to college, I, we came to Mercer over here in Macon, where I am now, uh, to college and had to learn how to make jambalaya, gumbo, red beans and rice, uh, family recipes. And, and my mom makes red beans and rice. Well, it's the way I grew up making red beans and rice. It's the way she grew up making red beans and rice. You have it on Mondays. Uh, you always had red beans and rice on Monday. And it's it's a great recipe. It, it is not your standard New Orleans uh red beans and rice but it's it's the one i grew up with and it's the one i like the most uh and even my wife likes it we can't make it a spicy with her cancer um she gets uh, the medicine she's on sometimes she gets sores in her mouth and so she's more sensitive to spicy food now but man i love a good bowl of spicy red beans and rice with fresh garlic bread it's fantastic and if you want the recipe text recipe to 33777 you'll get it at noon it is very easy to make uh you will not be intimidated by it you don't have to make a roux or anything it's it's an easy good recipe now um 
Again, uh, Jeff Duncan, if you want to, if you want to re-listen to that interview, you can, we've got a podcast for the show where we take the show and we make it in podcast form. And uh, we use the number 33777 for everything. You text army, you're on the activist list. You text recipe, you get the recipes. If you text the word show, uh, I'll send you back a link to the podcast for Google play or for, um, for iOS. Um, so text show to, to 33777 if you want to re-listen to Jeff Duncan's interview, which I'll also replay in my evening show. Uh, this evening, um, education reform is one of those things where the chief impediments are always the Republicans in the state legislature, always the Republicans. And one of the reasons it's Republicans is, is several of the Republican leaders, uh, they have family members who are in private schools in good communities, uh, that are opposed to charter schools because they think it'll undermine their good community public schools. And and I don't think that's true, but that's one of the blowbacks you get. And so I appreciate the Lieutenant Governor fighting the good fight on charter schools. Very diplomatic answer on his part as well that uh, he is backing Kelly Leffler. He would support Doug Collins if he gets it. But here's here's the here's the thing. Notice what he said. Very diplomatic answer there. But notice what he said that if Doug Collins gets into the runoff with the Democrat he will support Doug Collins. The only way that Doug Collins would get into a runoff with the Democrat is for there to not be a special election primary. Subtle signal there, I would suspect, from the lieutenant governor that uh, the Senate will kill House Bill 757 if it gets through. But uh, I am told that it has been pulled. House Bill 757 has been pulled, and they've been pulled because um, they've been pulled because they don't have Republican votes for it in the state house. House Bill 757 originally was a bill to move up the qualifying period so that the Secretary of State would be able to get ballots to our soldiers uh, abroad. The Democrats, along with the Speaker of the House, hijacked Barry Fleming's legislation and used it to create a primary to help Doug Collins and help Raphael Warnock. And uh, now there aren't enough Republican votes in the House to get it through, so they've had to pull it and send it back to the Rules Committee. We will see what they do. Keep up the pressure, though. If you want to call your state representative and tell them to oppose this legislation, text the word ARMY to 33777. I will immediately send you back a link that you can click. You can put in your address, and you'll generate an email to your state rep and also a phone call. Now, uh, Mary somebody, uh, Alexander somebody, one of the state reps out there is telling people, you know, Barry Fleming supported this. Scott Walker, or Scott Turner was the only Republican to, to oppose this. That's not true. Barry Fleming, highly respected chairman of the Judiciary Committee uh, from over in the Augusta area, he wound up voting against his own legislation because he was opposed to the Speaker and the Democrats hijacking his legislation. And now it looks like a majority of the Republicans in the state house may be opposed to this legislation. Uh, it is rewriting the rules now that the election's begun. Not a smart thing for them to do. Let's go to the phones, Randy. Uh, you're going to be up first today. Welcome to the program, Randy. Hey, Eric. How are you doing today? Great. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Just wanted to kind of get a uh, a plug in again for the Ensoro Foundation. Yes. Uh, I spoke to you uh, a couple of days ago and everything, and the fact that Kelly Luffler, uh, who Jeff Duncan and everything, we were all talking about there, uh, she was actually queen of the Starfish Ball this year. Uh, so if you kind of Google Starfish Ball, that sort of thing, you will uh, find 
uh, lots of pictures and then uh, more information about the Ensoro Foundation. Well, you, and, you know, uh, tell people about, about the Ensoro Foundation because, you know, until you had called me, Randy, the last time, I never heard of it. And it just sounds like a great group. And, and please explain it to folks. Yes, it, it was a foundation established by Daryl Mays. Uh, Daryl uh, lives here in Georgia, and uh, he established it uh, quite some time ago uh, for kids who age out of foster homes. Uh, so that they will have funds available to go to college. That's fantastic. And so Kelly Leffler was involved this year with it. Absolutely, yes. Good. Uh, and, uh, and there are many others. Uh, like I say, if you actually visit the website, you'll see uh, you know, folks who, who are on the board. Uh, and there are people who a lot of people will know. Good. Well, look, thank you very much for, for highlighting that. And this, again, it, it's her being involved. In the community. Can, can, can I be real honest with you all as we go to break? I'm just, I'm, I'm not impressed with her rollout. I, I'm, I'm not impressed. I, and she is a smart, capable person. But this the social media stuff and and these ads, I'm just y'all. I'm sorry, I'm not impressed. Uh, she can do better. That her team is doing her a disservice. I think, uh, and and I know parts of her team, and and they're good people, and I know they just want to boost her name ID, but. We got to we got to do better on this. And if there's one good thing to come out of Doug Collins, uh, challenging is it's going to force them all to be on their A game. Now there is some movement there. We do need to get into impeachment, but y'all, God help me, I'm so tired of talking about impeachment. And I got to do it when we come back because there actually is a lot of impeachment news we need to consider. And I've got a few scoops for those of you listening. I've got some intel from the Senate when we come back. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We'll see how long my, my voice holds up. <laughs> Y'all, I I woke up yesterday about three o'clock in the morning. Man, I had the worst sore throat. And it has got to be winter can't make up its damn mind as to whether or not it's going to be winter, spring, summer, fall, something in between. And it has just it has messed with my sinuses. Um, and so if I sound like foghorn leghorn, there you have it. Uh, there is news and we need to get to this news before we get to the impeachment stuff. I have been talking to people in the Senate about impeachment. There is actually growing confidence that the. um that the Republicans will have the votes to to wrap this up and not call witnesses. And that's what they're hoping for. There's no guarantee, but it looks like right now they're not going to do that. We'll get into some of the questions that they've asked. Today is another day where they'll be asking questions. Uh, but before I do that, I need to bring you up to speed on, on this Collins-Leffler situation in the state because there's actually a lot of news that has come out of this. The Club for Growth is launching an ad campaign in Georgia against Doug Collins. The Club for Growth, uh, Collins, uh, Doug's an, an awesome guy. He doesn't have a great fiscal track record. And uh, the Club for Growth is is going to blow him up in Georgia for being a big spender, among other things. And uh, they're prepared to come after him. Uh, the American Conservative Union uh, with uh, Matt Schlapp is going to line up for Doug Collins. They'll be coming out to defend him. Uh, they don't want to go after Kelly Leffler per se, 
They want to just support Doug Collins. Uh, the other thing you need to know is that Raphael Warnock is the highly progressive minister in charge of Ebenezer Baptist Church, and he has declared now he's running for the Senate. Now that Collins has managed to divide the Republicans, uh, the Democrats are going to put up a united front. And by the way, this uh, I you know I'm I'm with Je- De- Jeff Duncan. If you weren't here last hour. Jeff Duncan was talking to me about the education reform package he wants to pursue, but also he was talking about the Collins-Leffler race. And he says uh, he loves Doug Collins. Doug Collins is a great man, but he's with Kelly Leffler. And one of the the issues here is dividing the Republican Party, and and we don't need to divide the Republican Party at this time. And and that is on Doug uh, and Speaker Ralston dividing the Republican Party. And as the Republicans have divided... The Democrats are suddenly emboldened to unite behind Raphael Warnock. Raphael Warnock, he's African-American minister, Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. He is highly progressive. He runs the New Georgia Project uh, in Stacey Abrams' stead. He is, he, when you hear uh, minister, you may think social conservative. He is in no way, shape, or form socially conservative. Uh, he is a highly socially progressive, uh, socially, fiscally uh, progressive activist, and um, and the Democrats are going to unite behind him. Stacey Abrams and Chuck Schumer together trying to pressure Matt Lieberman out of the race, trying to pressure Ed Tarver out of the race. The Democrats involved, they want a united front for Warnock against Collins and Leffler. And this is going to force the president's hand to some degree. There are some Republicans who think having a divided special election with the GOP actually is a bad. And I actually am leaning towards that position. Let me tell you the thinking here. If you were to have this primary, so so House Bill 757, which thanks to you guys may die. Uh, they've had to take it off the floor of the House now. Uh, they don't have the Republican votes for it. House Bill 757 would create a primary for the special election. The Speaker of the House lied the other day. Uh, David, I mean, what do you expect from David Ralston? David Ralston told everybody that this would create special ele- this would create primaries for every special election. Two years ago, David Ralston killed legislation that had been drafted by State Senator Josh McCoon. When it passed the Senate, it got to the House, and David Ralston killed it. And that legislation would have created primaries for every special election. Well, now Ralston, two years later, says, "Hey, we need primaries for every special election." Unfortunately, people have started reading the legislation, and it very clearly doesn't apply to every special election. It only applies to ones where the governor's made an appointment, which means it only applies to this race. Having the Speaker of the House already in the midst of a scandal of protecting men from ever having to face justice for beating up women and abusing women, uh, having him now pass legislation to punish a female U.S. senator for merely for having the audacity of being who Brian Kemp picked is not good optics for the GOP as they try to win back women in the suburbs. But that's what David Ralston's doing. And it looks like it's going to be dead now, thanks to you guys. We should not be letting the Democrats in Georgia write election legislation while Republicans control everything. If it's good for the Democrats, and the Democrats are the ones who advanced this proposal, if it's good for the Democrats, it's probably not good for Republicans. And here's the here's the the thinking on why having Leffler and Collins on the ballot in November may be good as opposed to settling this in a primary. Leffler, let's just acknowledge right now, Kelly Leffler does not have a huge base of her own support. But what she does have is a lot of Brian Kemp support. And a lot of people will go defend Kelly Leffler because they recognize that Doug Collins getting into the race is really a challenge to Governor Kemp's power. 
and a challenge to the governor's ability to pick the the, the person. And frankly, Leffler hasn't done anything wrong. She's going to vote for a quit. She took on Mitt Romney. She's given lots of money to Republicans. She's supporting the president's agenda. Uh, she's done nothing that could give conservatives a grievance against her. So this looks like uh, the, the National Republican Senatorial Committee is saying it's selfishness on, on Doug Collins' part. Um, and there are a lot of Republicans out there saying, yeah, he just he wants the job. And he's going to divide the party to get it. But if you have a primary, by the time you get to the primary, Leffler will have support and Collins will have support. And it will be a nasty primary. And what will happen is you'll get to November and you'll have whoever wins, if it's Leffler or if it's Collins, some of the other party's voters will say, you know what? A pox on them. I'm not going to go vote for them. Screw them. That happened in the Cagle-Kemp race. That's one reason. When you look at the number of Republicans who didn't vote, there were a lot of people who had supported Cagle. And they got pissed off that Kemp had won. They thought Kemp was a bad guy. They believed the attacks. And they're like, I'm not going to go vote for that guy. And they skipped over the gubernatorial race. So if you don't have a primary to create those sour grapes... And you move it to November, as it's supposed to be. You don't rewrite the rules. Then suddenly you've got mobilized constituencies for Leffler and mobilized constituencies for Collins, and they all show up. And Republicans still have a ballot advantage in Georgia over the Democrats. And so while Warnock may be able to consolidate the Democrats, he's not going to be able to get to 50%. Because more than 50% of the vote will be split between Leffler and Collins. And one of them will get into a runoff then with Warnock. And you'll say, well, well, doesn't that matter? Well, yeah, it does, except in partisan runoffs in this state, Republicans have an advantage. Republicans have always had an advantage in partisan runoffs. And this goes back to when Democrats controlled the state completely. The only way for Republicans to win back in the day was to get into a runoff with a Democrat. And the same holds true now. It actually gives Republicans an advantage going into a runoff. So you have Leffler and Collins on the November November ballot instead of trying to have this primary, and that actually helps the Republicans mobilize full turnout. The problem again, though, is it does become a wild card if Warnock can consolidate a lot of voters. And it also prevents Leffler from being able to reach out to the suburban voters. Leffler was picked in large part because the governor needs somebody to be able to rebuild Republican bridges in the suburbs. And the governor can now do that by proving he's his own man, but he wants someone else on the ticket to do that. And if Collins were to get it, he would be back on the ballot in two years when the governor will also be on the ballot. And the governor would like to look ahead and say, you know what, we're going to have a a statewide man and a statewide woman, both Republicans running, and we will be able to have a diverse ticket of people. We'll have uh, John King, who will be the uh, insurance commissioner. He will be Hispanic. You'll have Kelly Leffler, woman. You'll have Brian Kemp. Doug Collins throws a monkey wrench into all of that planning. And you're going to have national Republicans pour into the state to try to blow up Collins and shut him down. And you're going to have the Democrats fielding a highly united front in the state with Warnock. Again, they're going to push Matt Lieberman out of the race. He's got $700,000, but they will offer him something to get him out of the race. Ed Tarver's been hinting with it. I think he's he's formally said he's going to run. He hasn't actually done much. They will push him out of the race. So you will have 100% of the Democrats behind a highly progressive black minister from Atlanta 
and you will have the Republicans divided because of Doug Collins. And I say that intentionally because as much as I like Doug Collins, that is the reality here. Collins is forcing the Republicans to fracture by doing this. Leffler got the appointment. It's hers. There's no reason to force her out of the race. She is the incumbent United States senator. She will cast a vote. By the way, you should know that the Senate Republicans are out attacking Doug Collins today because he's on the president's impeachment team, and he was in Georgia yesterday announcing he's going to run for the Senate. He was not in the Senate yesterday helping the president's team with impeachment, and Mitch McConnell has made sure that the president knows that, which is one reason I'm told the president decided to do what he did with Kelly Leffler yesterday. He's not happy that Collins wasn't there to defend him. All that being said, can we at least acknowledge Doug Collins is a, is a good guy? And you're going to see a bunch of people from out of state come in and, and engage in character assassination of Collins. And we shouldn't let that happen either. As much as we can be aggravated that we're now going to have to fight this fight when we should be united against Ra- Raphael Warnock. Collins is a good guy and doesn't deserve the character assassination of, of what's coming um, as much as I may disagree with what he's doing. Now, this all gets back to House Bill 757. Uh, the Democrats plotted this with the Speaker of the House, and you guys, and, and I'm getting credit from all sorts of people, and it's not me, it's y'all. Uh, y'all are the ones who called your state representatives and said, this is a bad idea, don't do it. Y'all are the ones who got on the phone and made it happen. Y'all are the ones who engaged in the system, used the activist system. Uh, if you haven't yet called your state representative, text the word ARMY to 33777, and, and we need to make sure this legislation dies. Uh, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, the Democrats in the state house, with the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, Try are trying to rewrite the rules of the special election. The special election has what's called a jungle primary. All the Republicans and Democrats are piled together on a single ballot. And the top two vote getters get into a runoff. You may have a Collins Leffler runoff. You could. What the Democrats convinced the speaker to do was to create a primary because they were worried about clearing the field for Warnock and they wanted the ability to rally around him and they wanted to create that primary for him. And so they convinced the speaker that this would incentivize Doug Collins getting into the race, create a primary for Doug Collins to go after Kelly Leffler. But what they really wanted was to consolidate the democratic field quickly, as opposed to not being able to get people out of the race. They're going to do their best to get Matt Lieberman out of the race now. But it was a Democratic effort to rewrite election rules in Georgia, and Speaker Ralston went along with it. The chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Barry Fleming, it was his legislation, and he voted against it ultimately because he didn't want it hijacked by the Democrats. The uh, lieutenant governor is opposed to it. The governor is opposed to it. But the Democrats in the state house and the speaker want to hijack the special election and rewrite the rules. And you should tell your state representative that they don't need to be rewriting the rules and creating a primary right now. And it is very notable that uh, two years ago, Josh McCoon wanted to do exactly what the Speaker of the House now says he wants to do, and the Speaker killed it. And the Speaker of the House is telling everyone this legislation, House Bill 757, would create primaries for every special election. But if you actually read the law, that's not true. What it does is it only creates a special election for gubernatorial appointments. The only person the governor can appoint is a U.S. senator. In other words, this legislation is specifically designed to hurt Kelly Leffler. Why is the Speaker of the House working with Democrats to hurt the first woman from Georgia in the U.S. Senate since before World War I? Why target the woman? The Speaker of the House, before the session started, 
said that the Republicans needed to work hard to re-win the votes of women in the suburbs. And so his strategy is to bully a woman in the Senate to win back the women in the suburbs. That makes no sense. What it is is a power play by the Speaker trying to divide conservatives so they can't focus on how bad he is. Democratic activists are sending all of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate cakes that say, let Bolton testify. What, what, it, and they're actually like edible good cake, apparently. Why? Why? Man, these people. My goodness gracious. Um, questions will continue today. Here's what I'm being told. Uh, by those in the Senate, McConnell is increasingly confident he now has the votes to block witnesses. Cory Gardner has come out and said there's no need to hear from more witnesses. They've heard from 17. Now, I realize that um, the Democratic talking point and the media talking point is that there have been no witnesses in the Senate, but that's not actually true. The depositions and records of the uh, 17 people interviewed by the House are there. They've been reviewed. And then they're a little bit perturbed with Al, with Adam Schiff as well. Let me play you from the impeachment what Adam Schiff had to say. Let me be clear about several things about the whistleblower. First of all, I don't know who the whistleblower is. I haven't met them uh, or communicated with them in any way. The community, the committee staff, did not write the complaint or coach the whistleblower what to put in the complaint. The committee staff did not see the complaint before it was submitted to the inspector general. The committee, including its staff, did not receive the complaint until the night before acting director of national intelligence. Uh, uh, we had an open hearing with the active director on September 26, more than three weeks after the legal deadline by which the committee should have received the complaint. But that's not really true based on Schiff's prior statements um, that his staff did talk to the whistleblower, and, and there does seem to be some question about staffers. Uh, this is one of the things Mitt Romney wanted to ask about, uh, is a, there was some rollover within the National Security Council staffing, and some of those people wound up going to work for Adam Schiff all during the time of the whistleblower. And Romney's trying to ascertain this, and this is a big red flag for Mitt Romney as well, uh, as to whether or not um, whether or not there was some level of coordination among the Democrats before this happened. Now, uh, this audio has surfaced from John Bolton that the Republicans are pushing out hard when it comes to whether or not he should testify. Well, I, I will be meeting President Zelensky. Uh, he and President Trump have already spoken twice. Uh, uh, President called to congratulate President Zelensky on his election and then on his success in the parliamentary election. They were very warm and cordial calls. Uh, we're hoping that uh, they'll be able to meet in Warsaw and have a few minutes together. A, a cordial conversation. He didn't raise any red flags there. Well, some of the stuff is, is genuinely just absurd. Uh, and he, some of the statements by the Democrats and the conspiracy theories. Uh, Tim Scott, by the way, from South Carolina, has come out and said uh, he looks forward to reading John Bolton's book when it's published, but he sees no reason to call him or get the manuscript. Uh, and that seems to be a, a line from most of them. And now you've got Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, upping the stakes. Well, let me put this in, in contrast here. Here first, this is Hakeem Jeffries. Well, it's my view that Hunter Biden is not a relevant witness, but I have great respect for Joe Manchin and for all of the senators on both sides of the aisle. And ultimately, uh, they, in the first instance, will make this decision in terms of the witnesses uh, that should be called 
Although, as Senator Manchin indicated, I do believe that Chief Justice John Roberts should be the ultimate arbiter and referee in terms of deciding relevance. Yeah, whatever. Well, here's Joe Manchin. If the judge or whoever rules that it's pertinent, absolutely. I want witnesses. I want people to tell me what you know. You're asking me to make the most important decision I've ever made in the political arena that I'm in or as an individual. And I want to hear everything I can. I want to make sure that the your decision phone I make yet? is like, the right Has Chuck decision. Schumer gotten you on the phone yet to talk to you about what you just told us? Because, Chuck and I have I mean, that's Chuck not the line necessarily. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. You know me. I'm, I'm West Virginia. I'm Joe from West Virginia. Does it? And Chuck's Chuck's my friend. These all, you know, I can get along with everybody. All the Republicans. I don't have anybody I don't like. And I try to work with all of them. But by golly, I've got to go home and look West Virginia in the eye and say, hey, this is why I did it. If I can't get, if I don't have an answer, and if I can't explain it, I can't vote for it. And I and have no, no problem at all. So he's got no problem calling Hunter Biden. The Republicans are going to call Hunter Biden. Uh, Ted Cruz is out there saying essentially they've got the votes to make it happen, uh, that they would call Hunter Biden if any Democratic witness shows up. Ah, this is going to be this is and this is why there's a growing sense among Republicans that Mitch McConnell now has the votes to shut this thing down is that there's a reluctance to turn it into a soap opera. And as as the reluctance to turn it into a soap opera grows, the Democrats increasingly want John Roberts to be the arbiter of everything on the floor of the Senate. And that actually defies Senate precedent. Samuel Chase, in an impeachment back in the 1800s, vote to, to break a tie during an impeachment. And ever since, there have been a lot of scholars who have said he actually had no power to do that. And now the Democrats are saying they want John Roberts to follow the chase precedent and break any ties that they think are coming up. And and there probably isn't going to be a tie. There's probably not going to be one. It looks like McConnell is now going to hold everyone in line. We've got some audio from the yesterday's Q&A session we should play when we come back. You can always go to theresurgent.com. That's where I do all of my writing. I, I want to get into now some of the... Um, floor debate and arguments. Uh, in particular, I want you to listen to Mitt Romney's questions to the Trump team yesterday. Romney is one of the wild cards on witnesses. He's leaning towards witnesses, but he's not completely sure he wants them. It's to rig our elections. Thank you, Mr. Manager. Mr. Chief Justice. The Senator from Utah. I submit a question to the desk. Thank you. The question from Senator Romney is for the counsel to the president. On what specific date did President Trump first order the hold on security assistance to Ukraine, and did he explain the reason at that time? Mr. Chief Justice, Senator, thank you for the question. I don't think that there is evidence in the record of a specific date, the specific date. But there is testimony in the record that um, individuals at OMB and elsewhere were aware of a hold uh, as of July 3rd. And there is evidence in the record of the president's rationales from uh, even earlier than that time. Um, There is an email from June 24th that has been publicly released. It was publicly released in response to a FOIA request that is from uh, one DOD staffer up to the chief of staff in DOD, uh, excuse me, sorry, from the chief of staff down to a staffer in DOD, 
relating on the subject line POTUS follow-up. It's follow-up from a meeting with POTUS, the President of the United States, explaining questions that had been asked about the Ukraine assistance, which were specifically, what was the funding used for, i.e., did it go to U.S. firms, who funded it, and what do other NATO members spend to support Ukraine? Um, so from the very beginning in June, the President had expressed his concern about burden sharing, what the other NATO members do. Similarly, in the July 25th transcript, um, there was uh, the, the President asked President Zelensky specifically, he raised the issue of burden sharing, again showing that that was his concern. Romney is trying to find a way to not call witnesses. He, he's trying to get as much evidence in there so that he doesn't need the witness because a lot of the Bolton stuff has leaked anyway. And he's trying to, and the reason I say that uh, is because when you look at the rest of his questions, he asked uh, the house Democrats on, can the president do something uh, that is in the interests of the United States, uh, but may also benefit him politically. And, and would it be impeachable if it benefited him politically, even though objectively it benefited the United States. And, and that gets to the corruption angle in Ukraine. That in Ukraine, the president says he wanted to make sure American money was going to be wasted, that it was going to go fight corruption. And that may benefit him politically because there is an outstanding issue with Hunter Biden. Uh, but it's also in the interest of the United States. And the Democrats did not have a good answer for it. I was trying to find the audio here and, and, the service we have does not have their response, but it was a it was a good response. And they've also asked uh, um, what Patrick Philbin about witnesses. Here's some of what Patrick Philbin had to say about calling witnesses for impeachment. I think this is one of the most important issues that this body faces, given these calls uh, to have witnesses, because the House managers try to present it as if it's, it's just a simple question, how can you have a trial without witnesses? But in real litigation, no one goes to trial without doing discovery. No one goes to trial without having heard from the witnesses first. You don't show up at trial and then start trying to call witnesses for the first time. And the implications here in our constitutional structure for trying to run things in such uh, an upside-down way would be very grave for this body as an institution. Because as the Senator's question points out, it largely prevents this chamber from getting other business done as long as there is a trial pending. And the idea that the House can do an incomplete job in trying to find out what witnesses there are, having them come testify, trying to find out the facts, just rush something through and bring it here as an impeachment and then start trying to call all the witnesses means that this body will end up taking over that investigatory task and all of the regular business of this body will be slowed down, hindered, or prevented while that goes on. And it's not a question of just one witness. It's not a question of a lot of people talk right now about John Bolton, but the president would have the opportunity to call his witnesses just as a matter of fundamental fairness. He would. D despite all of this Democratic talk about uh, there's no witness reciprocity, there actually would be. The president would get to call witnesses he, he wants to call. And one of the witnesses the president wants to call is Hunter Biden. Here's Ted Cruz. Down here that Chuck Schumer 
uh, had, had, had said to the press, well, I don't think the Republicans have the votes to call Hunter Biden. That really speaks volumes how desperate Democrats are to block Hunter Biden. Let me tell you, Chuck's wrong on that. I don't know if we will call additional witnesses in addition to the 17 witnesses who already testified in the House proceedings. I don't know on Friday if there will be 51 votes to call yet more witnesses. But I'm confident of this. If there are additional witnesses, if the Democrats get their wish to call John Bolton as the 18th witness in this matter, I am confident we're not going to do the kind of one-sided partisan show that the House did. We're going to be fair to both sides, which means if we call John Bolton, I promise you we're calling Hunter Biden soon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one for one. You get John Bolton, we get Hunter Biden. Uh, they also want to call Adam Schiff, the Republicans do, and they want to call the whistleblower. Now, here's Patrick. By the way, there was an interesting exchange uh, on the floor yesterday. Let me see if I can actually find this real quick. Um, I don't know that I can. Um, it it kind of got went went down the rabbit hole. Mike Lee and uh, Mike Lee and Rand Paul both wanted to ask about the whistleblower. And in so asking about the whistleblower, the chief justice would not allow Rand Paul to ask his question because he named the potential whistleblower. Mike Lee did not. And uh, it was asked to the Republicans and the Republican Council did point out that a lot of these people uh, did uh, go work for the Democrats. They left the National Security Council and they went to work for the Democrats as the Democrats were plotting the impeachment of the president. Very clearly, there had to be some level of coordination. And that gives rise to the fact that the Republicans want to build a case to call the whistleblower. Here's a little more from Patrick Philbin on the Democrats. Lastly, on to the point of whether this chamber should hear from Ambassador Bolton. And I think it's important to consider what that means, because it's not just a question of, well, should we just hear one witness? That's not what the real question is going to be. For this institution, the real question is, what is the precedent that is going to be set for what is an acceptable way for the House of Representatives to bring an impeachment of a president of the United States to this chamber? And can it be done in a hurried, half-baked, partisan fashion without, they didn't even subpoena John Bolton below. They didn't even try to get his testimony. And to insist now that this body will become the investigative body, that this body will have to do all the discovery, and that this institution will be effectively paralyzed for months on end because it has to sit as a court of impeachment while now discovery is done because it would be Ambassador Bolton, and if, if they're going to be witnesses, then the president would have to, in order, they said fair trial, fair adjudication, then the president would have to have his opportunity to call his witnesses. And there'd be depositions, and this would drag on for months. And then that's the new precedent. Then that's the way all impeachments operate in the future. Notices play on precedent. That's something Republicans worried about. Uh, the, 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 the precedent of proceeding and doing this and having the president then fight executive privilege. And the Democratic argument is, well, the chief justice can decide himself. Because the Constitution gives the Senate the sole power to try impeachment, the chief justice being the presiding officer would be able to do this. And most legal scholars actually don't buy this. Even the legal scholars who want the president impeached don't actually buy that. Well, the other thing that came out of impeachment was this novel argument from Alan Dershowitz. Uh, it was a dumb argument. And even like, I, I got attacked last night on this by some of the president's supporters. But you need to understand that even the president's supporters in the Senate and even the president's legal team disagree with what Dershowitz said yesterday. It's not just me. 
It is the president's own lawyers thought Dershowitz went too far yesterday. Let me play you what he said. There are three possible motives that a political figure can have. One, a motive in the public interest, and the Israel argument would be in the public interest. The second is in his own political interest, and the third, which hasn't been mentioned, would be in his own financial interest, his own pure financial interest, just putting money in the, in the bank. I want to focus on the second one for just one moment. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. That went too far for the president's most ardent defenders, and even the rest of the president's legal team walked it back yesterday. Uh, Essentially, Dershowitz's argument is that the president can commit a crime, and if he did so to help his reelection, and he believes his reelection is in the national interest, the president can't be prosecuted. That's the logical outcome there. Uh, My friend Gloria Borger, (laughs) I'll give her the word on this. I think to get back to the Dershowitz statement, which to me is outrageous and remarkable. Maybe he was trying to appeal to narcissism of politicians. I have absolutely no idea what he was trying to do. But he effectively said, if you believe you should be president, then you can do anything you want to make yourself president because you will believe that is in the national interest. So my question would be, can you um, arrest uh, an opponent of yours? Um, I mean, you know, the story, you can ask Questions like that ad infinitum. It is a ridiculous argument. I'm not a lawyer, so, okay, stipulate that. But to me, just as a, a, an American citizen, it seems ridiculous to say that just because you think you should be elected to an office, you can do anything you want to get there. Yeah, it's it's a problem. And he, again, even people like Andy McCarthy yesterday, who's one of the president's chief defenders, uh, said, nope, nope, this this goes too far, goes too far. It does go too far. Uh, and it was a ridiculous statement. And well, we'll hear. I don't know what happened. Al. I, I've never been a huge Dershowitz fan, by the way, but I'm I'm completely just befuddled by. some of Dershowitz's arguments. He had some good arguments up front, but then he kind of went downhill. The president's own lawyers have done a far better job than Dershowitz. Uh, Jay Sekulow has done a far better job. You know, um, Jay Sekulow, by the way, is a Georgia boy, went to uh, Lakeside High School in DeKalb County, went to Mercer University, graduated from Mercer Law School like me. Um, We're the two Mercer Law grads I think the law school would prefer to pretend don't exist. (laughs) Um, He's a good guy and he made some great arguments, but man, that, that Dershowitz argument... Uh, just kind of went downhill. Now, I, I'm going to go on and step out here because I, I've said what I need to say about impeachment to bring you up to speed. There's a lot of other stuff out there we need to talk about, including 30 Georgia state troopers have been fired for cheating and their Second Amendment legislation winding its way through the Georgia House of Representatives you need to know about that you'll probably like when you hear. Have you all heard about this? This is, wow. Uh, welcome back. It is Eric Erickson. If you want to call in and be a part of the program, you can. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. 
dozens, this is from uh, CBS 46 in Atlanta, dozens of Georgia State Patrol troopers are out of jobs after cheating on an online exam. The Georgia Department of Public Safety announced 30 troopers were fired Wednesday morning after an investigation into cheating that happened when the troopers were cadets last year. The members of the 106 uh, State Patrol Trooper School cheated on an online exam for speed detection. On the operator component of the academy curriculum. Uh, in addition to the 30 who were fired Wednesday, one trooper was fired in October, a second resigned, and a third is on military leave. That's the entire 106th. The investigation started in October and concluded earlier this month. Uh, the the uh, commissioner, the Department of Public Safety Commissioner, Colonel Mark McDonough, said that it started when a civilian came forward to report that she took the speed detection test for one of the cadets after the cadet provided his password for her to sign in to take the test. When the trooper was questioned, he admitted having knowledge of others who cheated. The trooper was fired in October. The investigation continued, leading to 30 people being fired Wednesday. Every single one of them admitted to cheating, and that means and the means by which they cheated. The cheating included sharing answers with each other and looking up answers online. Uh, McDonough also said they used a group chats and Snapchat uh, to get their story straight for when the investigation started. McDonough said the future in the future they'll give the exam in a traditional classroom setting and no longer allow them to take it online. The troopers in question have written about 133 speeding tickets in the few months they've been patrolling Georgia roads. McDonough said they will notify the court systems that the troopers were fired. With 30 troopers off the road, he said they'll move around resources as needed to cover those open positions until the next academy graduates in May. Wow. Now, where are these people from? Um, let's see. We've got a Hall County, Richmond County, Bibb County, Camden County, Rabin County, Clayton County, Green County, Catoosa County, Caida County, Coffee County, Paulding County, Walton, Muskogee, um, Columbia, Cobb, Gwinnett, Barrow, Colquitt, Houston, Carroll, Pike, Chris, Berrien, Sumter, Bryan, and Miller counties. Uh, holy moly, uh, that's a that is a a lot of the thirty of them fired in one day for cheat. All of them cheated. I, I I gotta I gotta. How do you? Why do you cheat on? It can't be that hard. If you just study. I'm not saying it, it's easy. What I am saying is if you study, I mean, the 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 105th class, they did it. The 104th class, they did it. This coming year's class, they'll do it. Why, why on earth did all these people cheat? And uh, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it. There, it, it, there is a, a, a generational entitlement mentality that I don't understand that is out there right now. And I'm not going to say millennial because millennials get get an unfair shake of this, but I, I, there's just, there is something in the gene pool right now where there are some really overly entitled people. Did you hear about the reporter from the Washington post? She, within an hour of reports coming online that Kobe Bryant had died in that helicopter crash the other day. She was already out circulating uh, the story of Kobe Bryant being accused of raping someone from years ago. And her editor told her to cut it out. 
the public was incensed that she would do it, that that would be the first thing she'd run to, not a not a prayers for the family or anything like that, but a, oh, hey, he was accused of raping someone. Here's the story. And she was suspended. And she basically, Kobe Bryant and his daughter may have been killed in the helicopter crash, but she has portrayed herself as the real victim here. Uh, how dare anyone tell me that I can't rush to disparage someone when they die, particularly a celebrity? That, that's been her attitude. And now she wants the editor who suspended her to get fired for for daring to fire her. The, the level of entitlement, I, I've never understood that level of entitlement. I mean, Christian humility goes a long way in life. Humility itself, take, take, take Christian out of it, just humility in the face of tragedy, humility in your behavior goes a long way. And the number of people, at least these people all fessed up eventually, the, these state patrol agents, none of them are out there screaming that they're victims, but man, the entitlement mentality of some people out there these days, that that they were entitled to cheat, that it was okay, that, that no one would question them particularly at a day and age when law enforcement itself is being questioned and the police themselves are getting a bad rap and the police themselves are, are they, they've got a black eye by the behavior of some of their colleagues. Here come 30 of them willing to cheat. Who does that? Who does that? It's just, it's a sad commentary on where we are as a society that so many people think they can do stuff like this and get away with it. And so many people engage in bad and uncivil behavior and then think they're the victims when someone calls them out on their bad behavior. You're not the victim when you're the jerk and people call you out on it. It's just, it's it's unfortunate we've gotten there. Uh, and we see this more and more these days with younger and younger people. And I, I, I don't want to say it's millennialism. I, I think it's persist, participation trophy. Everybody gets a participation trophy. Everybody wins. Nobody loses. Nobody keeps score anymore. You know who keeps score? The kids keep score. My kid is on a, a was on a, a little league soccer team. Scores were not kept. The kids knew who won. The kids kept up with it. It's part of human behavior. It reminds me of those stories of the parents who decide to raise their kids as gender-neutral kids, and they're shocked and appalled when the girls decide they like pink and the boys decide they like blue, when the girls decide they like dolls, and the boys decide they like bulldozers. And they're always shocked. How can this be? Clearly, there's a latent cultural community bias that my kids picked up on, and all of society is bigoted and sexist, as opposed to, you know what? Nature versus nurture. Nature plays a role in this. It's why I don't find it controversial to pass these laws. And we need to talk about this when we come back. Uh, there's a law pending in the Georgia legislature. It's winding its way through, and it's got bipartisan support. And it would prohibit uh, giving kids access to sex-altering drugs and, and testosterone and estrogen suppressors for boys and girls for transgenderism until they come of age. And it's got some bipartisan support, but the left is outraged that, oh, my goodness, we would stop this. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Atlanta. No, wrong show. <laughs> Y'all, the cold medicine. My goodness. Welcome. Uh, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. And I, need to, I want to give you a coronavirus update. First of all, you should know Wilbur Ross has kind of... 
Uh, how shall we say? Put his foot in his mouth. Let's see. Can I get this audio queued up? Please don't be an ad in front of it. I'm assuming there. Yep, well, here we first go. First of all, every American's heart has to go out to the victims of the coronavirus. So I don't want to talk about a victory lap over a very unfortunate, very malignant disease. But the fact is, it does give businesses yet another thing to consider when they go through their review of their supply chain. And top of all the other things, because you had SARS, you have the African swine virus there, now you have this. It's another risk factor that people need to take into account. So I think it will help to accelerate the return of jobs to North America, some to U.S., probably some to Mexico as well. You know, there's a there's a saying we say often in politics of people who say the quiet part out loud. And it is often not a good thing to say the quiet part out loud. And Ross may be right, but he's saying the quiet part out loud. It's not a good look for the Secretary of Commerce. By the way, I didn't realize that the Secretary of Commerce sounded so cadaverish. Uh, my goodness gracious, how old is that guy? Um, you, you expecting to fall asleep at any moment or start yelling at Maria Bartiromo to get off his lawn? Goodness gracious. Uh, but uh, yeah, you, you don't you don't say the quiet part out loud. You don't say yeah. The I'm not going to do a victory lap on China getting the coronavirus, but. Yikes. Uh, British Airways has canceled all flights in and out of China. Uh, they're, they don't want anybody from China coming into Great Britain right now via British Airways. Delta is cutting its flights to China. They say there's reduced demand and also there is the issue. Um, you know, the reality is the flu kills half a million people a year. We only have a few hundred deaths from the coronavirus so far, but it continues to spread and they don't have any... Um, way to to combat it. The National Security Council uh, has left. There's no one around to deal with uh, pandemic spread. Someone needs to be put in charge. This is from Axios. The primary goal so far has been to contain the virus. That's what China's locked down uh, Wuhan, and the U.S. has expanded travel screenings. But getting a lid on the coronavirus may not be may be impossible. Global and national planning efforts should now be aimed at the possibility that the virus cannot be contained, says Tom Inglesby, an infectious disease expert at Johns Hopkins University. China has already seen 6,000 confirmed cases touching every region of the country. It's now shown up in 15 other countries. It suggests that the coronavirus spreads like the flu virus. What you get concerned about is the contact of the contact of the contact of the person that was in China. That's part of the reason travel screening or travel restrictions may not make much difference. Hospitals are going to need more protective equipment. There, there are masks. You know, so Chris Burns, and by the way, I, I should say, because uh, I haven't done this this week, you hear his ads, but, you know, our show is sponsored by Dynamic Money. And if you watched Kennedy last night on Fox Business, Chris Burns, the president of Dynamic Money, was on, and he also is my 
guest host here on the program. He's also a friend, and he actually is my financial advisor. Uh, if you guys need somebody to help you manage your money, uh, teach you family budgeting, uh, get you out of debt, uh, help you get out of debt, uh, teach you all the skills by which to get out of debt, stop using your credit cards, uh, invest for retirement, invest for savings, uh, go to Dynamic Money. They'll they'll meet you. Uh, they can do a, a FaceTime. They can do a phone call. You don't have to show up in their office in Atlanta. Uh, they will meet you where you are, anywhere in the state of Georgia. And uh, they really are good people. In fact, as a matter of fact, uh, he's got to be such a good friend. Uh, one of the things that I hate in life is vacation because I love my work. I'm, I really do. And I, I got to be mindful of that with a family that I also love that sometimes I put work first and I shouldn't. And and that guy, Chris Burns, he, he essentially was able to, to reroute my money and uh, get me a vacation uh, for spring break, take my wife and kids to Hilton Head. It is the one place on planet Earth that I always can relax. One day I want a house in Hilton Head, but um, it, it just I wouldn't have been able to do it without good financial planning uh, because I've had so much credit card debt. We've, we've gotten that. Um, we, we, We've gotten that squared away, and so, yeah, I mean, Chris has been able to help me build up a retirement plan and apparently a vacation fund. I didn't even know he was building up for me, so I can go on vacation with my family. Um, so, again, Dynamic Money, they sponsor the show. Chris is a guest host. He was on Kennedy last night, uh, and there's a method to, to why I'm doing this other than they're sponsoring the show, and I want you to know about it, and you really should if, if you – want to build a retirement plan, you're in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, you want to start thinking about retirement, you want to th start building retirement, you want to start thinking about education saving plans for your kids, or just uh, get yourself out of debt and come up with a family budget and learn budgeting skills, Dynamic Money can help you. The website is dynamicmoney.com, and in all seriousness, they, they'll they meet you on the phone, they'll do, a, they'll do a FaceTime or a video chat with you so you don't have to drive to Atlanta. They're just good people, and Chris has got to be such a good friend, and... <laughs> He was on Kennedy last night, and he made this point that all these all these people who are out there saying, um, how should you invest because of the Wuhan virus or the Wuhan flu? He said, you know, uh, a, a week ago, invest in face masks, but they're all sold out now, so, so you can't buy one. So why do a strategy based in, oh, we now have this catastrophe. How should we invest? Uh, don't don't invest on daily events. Invest for the long term. And it, it, it's it's good wisdom that we need to remember. But so much of our news cycle is wrapped up in uh, the immediacy of the news cycle and, and the news cycle now. And, oh, which stock should I buy to profit from this? Well, uh, who knows if it's going to still be around tomorrow. 500 years ago, they were telling you to buy tulip bulbs. And then look what happened with that. Uh, don't don't invest that way, which is why Dynamic Money is such a good good uh, sound financial planning company that they don't invest on trends, which is a good thing because the trends will eventually go away. But here we are with Wilbur Ross now, the the Secretary of Commerce, saying, "Hey, uh, I don't want to do a victory lap, but but the coronavirus may benefit us. It may get people to come back here and invest in the United States, and it may, you know, Apple Computer." Well, I shouldn't say Apple Computer. They changed their name now. They're just Apple Inc. Uh, Apple came out and said that it's concerned about the coronavirus. It, its supply chain is being disrupted in China because so many people are getting infected over there, and it is starting to have an impact. And there's a lot of uh, – a, a great deal of um, – People out there who are infected, who would be in China, who might work in Apple supply chains or buy Apple products, they've had to shut down some stores. There are now confirmed cases, 7,711 cases in China. In the United States, there are only five cases confirmed. 
Um, but they still expect this to spread. 170 people have died so far. Now, keep in mind, again, 500,000 people uh, die a year because of flu. Well, now here's a report. A Carnival cruise ship with 7,000 passengers has been blocked from leaving an Italian port after a passenger from Macau experienced possible coronavirus symptoms. It could be the first cruise ship impacted by the coronavirus spread. Oh boy! Now I want to—I flagged this story earlier, and and you know this is a Chernobyl moment in China. I want to read you. A buddy of mine sent me this. Uh, he's on an on an email list. Uh, a guy named Dave Yin. Uh, he's a reporter for a an outfit in Beijing. Wrote this over the Lunar New Year break. I had the chance to cover China's growing novel coronavirus outbreak. What seemed like just a little disease in one corner of the country two weeks ago has grown to so much more. Besides the rising infection numbers and death toll, Chinese media have managed to publish pieces on fears raised by SARS experts, citywide quarantines, disputes over origins of the virus, evacuation measures by foreign governments, the deaths of officials due to the infection, authorities seemingly breaking ranks to deflect blame, medical supply shortages, ensuing government acknowledgement, and more. And of course, who should forget the fact that the reporters have found ways to document ground zero, namely Wuhan, uh, Hubei province, a city under quarantine. It's uncommon for so much critical coverage to be available to the Chinese audience. Some observers have taken this as an indication that the Chinese government has allowed transparent discussion. But what these observers ignore is that authorities also detained those who first discussed the mysterious disease for spreading rumors. And they're censoring content even now. State media continues to downplay the story well after its impact was established. What is transparent for China is not very transparent at all. China is full of contradictions. It claims to have lifted millions out of poverty but crushes upward mobility. It touts medical responsiveness when, in fact, its health resources are strained even on a good day. The country's government often seeks and succeeds in applying double standards to itself. So how do you deal with this issue? Well, uh, there, there's a problem. Reuters reported Yawen Chin, a, a Wuhan native, and her colleague Kate Cadell reported on the shortage of testing supplies and the government's initial reticence, which has drawn criticism that China has taken too long to learn from the SARS outbreak that happened 17 years ago. Uh, now, there's a there's a, a story I saw in courts about how Chinese people are comparing the government's suppression of information to the Soviet Union's handling of the Chernobyl explosion in 1986. And I'm seeing this from a lot of people and I think there's merit to it. Uh, if you watch the Chernobyl series on HBO, the initial uh, responses were to deny that it was a problem, to cover it up, everybody covering their butts and, and lying about it until people started falling dead in the streets, among other things. And they couldn't deny it any longer. They had to do something. And it was a, the, a calamity for the Soviets, and it began to destabilize their system. And there are more and more people looking at this outbreak in China 17 years after SARS, which is now not the impact of the coronavirus appears to be spreading much faster and is probably ultimately going to have a higher death rate than SARS. And there are a great many people who are thinking this could totally destabilize the Chinese regime. Uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Xi Jinping, whatever, you, you know, the leader of China has increasingly become more dictatorial and increasingly more repressive and suppressing both the media and, and religious groups among others. And this could be his undoing. 
you know, I, I'm reminded again that nothing is permanent. We we have in this country Democrats and Republicans alike who are increasingly convinced that they can build permanent political majorities. In fact, you've got this this right now with the the people on the right thinking that the only goal of of the right right now should be to own the left, should be to get Donald Trump reelected. Well, what comes after that? Uh, do you keep him elected? Do you defy the Constitution? What do you do? And Democrats, of course, increasingly taking totalitarian positions while claiming it's the Republicans doing it. I, I began the show today. If you weren't here, Wells Fargo and Fifth Third Bank have both been pressured into stopping uh, supporting a scholarship program in Florida because horror of horrors. There are a thousand religious schools that participate in the scholarship program for poor kids, and 83 of them uh, believe that that uh, Christian doctrine on homosexuality and marriage should be enforced in their schools. And so because of 83 Christian schools, Wells Fargo and Fifth Third Bank will no longer help poor kids go to better, get better education because the left is bullying them to, to, to shut them down. Uh, all of this comes from the idea that there is permanence, that you can build permanence, that you can silence people, that you can get people out of the town square, that that you what what's you can go on to new things and the old things can be uh, sufficiently suppressed. We see this in China with the Chinese government trying to shut people down, trying to shut thought down, trying to shut the press down, uh, and they can't shut a disease down. And the disease is calling causing the press to become emboldened and the people emboldened against the Chinese regime. There is no such thing as permanence in politics, asked Joseph Stalin. There is no such thing as a permanent political majority in this country, asked Karl Rove. People tend to forget that things are changing all the time, and there is a level of instability in China now because of this disease. And it is absolutely insane that the Chinese government thinks it can control this when it can't. And now we, we get this report that was a key line in that report I read you that some of the authorities are now beginning to fall over dead of this disease. How quickly will it spread? I have no idea. Will it be contained in China? Of course not. It's not contained in China. It's already here in the United States. But it also goes to, to give lie to something else. We've got five confirmed cases in the United States of America. Out of a story that's now gone on for two weeks, how much better is our healthcare system? Because you listen to the New York Times editorial page, you listen to the left in this country, and, and they, they are fawning with praise for China. But the people who live in China say uh, that's not so fast. You may be talking about Chinese healthcare and how wonderful and glorious China is, but in fact, it's actually pretty terrible and it's short on supplies on a daily basis. And the fact that they've got this many people infected and so many people dead, and so many officials trying to cover their own butts to avoid blame, you know, turns out the capitalist system of the West and the free press system of the West and the free market system of the West and the freedom of religion system of the West is far superior than the Chinese autocratic system. And so many elite in this country are so enamored with China, they can't even see it. Oh, I still got other stuff to cover, but... I feel like I need to get to this. The phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. David Perdue was just on uh, Fox News. Let me play you some of this. I want Hunter Biden. I want Joe Biden. If we get anybody we want, we'll be here for a very long time. If you have the, the, the unmitigated temerity to want witnesses in a trial, we will make you pay for it. That's their argument. How dare the House assume there will be witnesses in a trial? 
One thing that seems to be sure in Washington is that what goes around comes around. It'll get worse and worse, and there'll be more and more, and every president will be impeached. Both sides on the impeachment trial taking questions from senators yesterday as President Trump weighs in on some newly resurfaced videos throwing the credibility of both John Bolton and Adam Schiff into question. In an interview last August, Bolton makes no claim of a quid pro quo when speaking about President Trump's July phone call with the Ukrainian president. Uh, let me, I'm sorry, folks. I'm, I'm, I fired up the clip. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. This is David Perdue. Though. Joining us now is Senator David Perdue. Senator, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Sandra. So how did the resurfacing of that video change things? It really doesn't, and neither did it uh, last uh, weekend when it came up to start with. Look, Sandra, this is a flawed process. The articles that were sent to us from the House are nothing more than poison or uh, fruit from a poison tree. The process in the House was illegitimate. Uh, it's inappropriate. They denied due process. And frankly, right now, the, the Democrats have come over to the Senate. They've harassed us, calling us uh, co-conspirators in a cover-up. They call the uh, defense team liars. And uh, what they want us to do now is what they should have done during their investigation. They should have called these witnesses and they sh uh, back when they had the uh, responsibility. But, Senator, looking back, heading into this process, I did see that you were open to witnesses if there was the need to hear from additional witnesses. So what have you seen play out in that impeachment trial that has led you to believe that no witnesses are needed? Well, let's clarify that. What I said was any witnesses that are already in the record, there are 17 witnesses that the House called, they haven't even requested any of those witnesses. And so my view is if we wanted to clarify something from an existing witness, that's fine. There's no they've already done depositions and so forth. What I'm saying is we can't go outside the scope of what we've been given. Our charge in the, in the Senate is to rule on the articles that have been brought to us. These two articles, as we've heard over and over this week after eight scintillating days here, is that the articles are not impeachable. And more than that, the House uh, managers have not proven their case. That's David Perdue uh, just a few minutes ago on Fox News pointing this out. He, you know, there are witnesses who are called in impeachment cases in the Senate. Uh, in fact, most have had witnesses. But go all the way back to 1797 in the first impeachment. There's never been a Senate that called witnesses who had not first been vetted by the House of Representatives in formulating articles of impeachment. That, that makes this stand out, and, and that's David Perdue's point. It is a new precedent that the House wants the Senate to set. To hear from witnesses who the House never heard from in formulating articles of impeachment. The House could have gotten John Bolton, could have gotten Mick Mulvaney. They just didn't even bother to try to get him, and that's the problem. And the Senate Republicans are right on that point. A man in blackface has robbed a bank in Maryland. Uh, people are now trying to find where Ralph Northam and Justin Trudeau have been in the last 24 hours. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I, I, I have saved this story, and, and I've got I, I to gotta do this story. I've I got to do it. Uh, and it, it, it's relevant to, to the politics of the day anyway. Uh, we do need to get into the Democratic primary here. I will take your phone calls. If you want to call in, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The New York Times has a story on the, the Buttigieg campaign. How people of color inside the Buttigieg campaign sought to be heard. The subtitle, 
As the candidate courted non-white voters, employees of color were voicing their frustrations, according to interviews, documents, and a recording. The campaign said it worked to foster a progressive workplace. <laughs> so, you know, Buttigieg is just like polling in negative numbers with black voters. Just just, just for perspective, uh, they're, Buttigieg, in fact, in one of the latest polls I've saw, uh, Joe Biden has 52% black support in this country, and Buttigieg does not even show up in the poll anymore. He was at 2%. He's not even there anymore. In early December, more than 100, and, and let me give credit, credit where it's due, read Epstein from the New York Times. In early December, more than 100 members of Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. Can you, by the way, that's just a hard, this is why he's not going to be president. Nobody can say his last name. Buttigieg's presidential campaign. Sounds like you're you've you're stuttering. Buttigieg's presidential campaign staff gathered at the South Bend City Church, a mile from headquarters, for a mandatory half-day retreat about diversity and inclusion. Less than two months remain before the start of voting, a time when most campaigns are focused full-time on politics. Buttigieg advisors say the retreat was part of an ongoing effort to foster a progressive culture that empowered employees of color. For some of these staff members, however, the workplace itself was a problem, and working for a candidate with so little support from black and Hispanic voters had become demoralizing. In interviews, current and former staff members of color said they believed that senior Buttigieg officials didn't listen to their concerns and ideas about the campaign. One said there was a daily emotional weight on people of color who felt they were employed in order to help the campaign meet its ambitious diversity targets. Some Hispanic employees said managers asked them to translate text, even if they didn't speak Spanish, making them feel disrespected. Wait a second. You got Hispanic employees who don't speak Spanish? <laughs> uh, wow. Let me just let me go back to this one. One said there was a daily emotional weight on people of color who felt they were employed to help the campaign meet its ambitious diversity targets. How is that bad there, but it's good in corporate America? Because corporate America does this too. Now, here's the thing. This is, this is hilarious. Um, they, they circulated a survey of microaggressions on the campaign. What is a microaggression? I, I, I honestly... I don't know that I can tell you what a microaggression is, but it's apparently a thing these days where it's little slights that just together add up to be one big problem. Let, let me let me read this for you. Here's the survey. In the workplace, have you ever experienced the following? All right, from a white colleague, I, I want to ask you all. Let me. I'm, I'm doing this on Facebook Live. We're going to do this all together. In the workplace, have you ever experienced the following from a white colleague? Now, for, for all of you watching on Facebook, for all of you listening anywhere you are in the country, just, just forget the white colleague part because has this ever happened to you? You've been interrupted or talked over. That's a microaggression. You've been left off a relevant email chain. Hey, Charlie, are you listening to this one? Have you been left off a relevant email chain? Apparently, it's a microaggression when I text with my buddy Drew and I forget to copy Charlie on, on the text message. Uh, we've been committing microaggressions, white people committing microaggressions against my white producer, but he's from Montana, so he doesn't count. <gasps> that was a microaggression I just did. Not invited to a meeting directly related to your job. <gasps> 
Has that ever happened to any of you? Apparently, if a white person does it to you, that's a microaggression. Your idea was ignored or dismissed without explanation. They didn't want to tell you you were an idiot. So they didn't, they just dismissed your idea. Someone else took credit for your idea or insight. And then in parentheses, they put even accidentally. It's a microaggression. Even if it's an accident, it's a microaggression. You've been called the name of a different staff member of color. (laughs) How sensitive are these people? Again, these are the microaggressions on the Buttigieg campaign. You've been interrupted. You've been left off an email chain. You, you've not been invited to a meeting that, that is about your job. You, you, you've been, your ideas have been ignored or dismissed without explanation. Someone took credit accidentally or not for your idea, or you've been called someone else's name. I apparently on a daily basis come to microaggression when I look at my kid and call my kid the dog's name or call the dog the kid's name. It's it's apparently a microaggression. I thought it was just me getting old. Nope, it's apparently a microaggression. And then then they ask these questions. What does good allyship look like? What the hell is allyship? What does good allyship look like to you? What does good allyship feel like? What does bad allyship look like? What does it feel like? What does allyship in the workplace look like and what does it feel like? Think for a moment or moments during which you experienced microaggressions. Without naming the names of people, can you name the microaggression? Describe those moments. What was the physical environment like if it happened in if it happened in 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 the ether in the ether, oh my lord! They actually do this. Wait a second, I, I can't parody this because it parodies itself. Think of a moment or moments during which you experienced microaggressions without naming names of the people. Can you name the microaggression? Describe the moments. Was it in a physical environment or did it happen in the ether? What do they mean by the ether? Well, a Slack chat, an email, or a text, or a direct message. Were there witnesses? Do you think they recognized it? Holy cow. Seriously? This is it? My wife is listening to this and she just texted me that the a microaggression is code for the aggrieved party needs to grow a pair. I, well, I'll put it politely for the, this. Is, wow. This is this is what the, the Buttigieg campaign is tied up with. By the way, you know what this reminds me of? This this is my moment of brilliance for the day. This this reminds me of the Kamala Harris story about the dysfunction in her campaign. It came out at the end when they knew they were losing. The Buttigieg campaign has been one of the most hyped things that white people in America like. The Buttigieg campaign has been the thing white reporters love. Millennial white gay mayor running for president of the United States, and he speaks Norwegian. Oh, he speaks Norwegian. Is it a microaggression that he speaks Norwegian and makes Hispanic employees translate Spanish texts? I bet that's a microaggression. By the way, is it not freeing to not care about this stuff? Isn't it a liberating thing? to to not be concerned about microaggressions to actually just man up and say uh oh somebody 
didn't copy me on the email chain. Must have been a mistake as opposed to it was a microaggression. They're out to get me. They are disrespecting me. No. Stop being an idiot. Good Lord. One of Mr. Buttigieg's, this is from the New York Times, one of Mr. Buttigieg's, is it a microaggression if you mispronounce his name? Because I got to tell you, when I tell Siri to, to, to do something when it comes to him, Siri always calls him butter judge. That, that's what Siri does. I've had to finally go in and train Siri that, no, if, I'm, if I want you to text somebody about Pete Buttigieg, it, it's actually Pete Buttigieg, uh, not Pete Boot Edge Edge or Pete Butter Judge. And originally it was Pete Butter Judge, and then it became Pete Boot Edge Edge. And, well, that's how you pronounce his name, Boot Edge Edge, Buttigieg, Buttigieg, Buttigieg. Is it a microaggression if you can't pronounce his name? Oh, my goodness gracious. A follow-up meeting nearly two weeks after the retreat, organized by staff members and attended by 70 people, became emotional, according to two people who were present. Some employees of color spoke about feeling disrespected by white colleagues. Others said they felt stressed for having to answer questions from friends and family members about working for a candidate struggling with minority voters. A second meeting on January 2nd featured lengthy discussions of the importance of diversity in hiring and sometimes tearful descriptions of the difficulty of recruiting people of color to the staff. Listen, you're working for a candidate who, when he puts on white socks, it's like camo. You can't even find him anymore. He's so white. I, I get that. I, I'm there too. But holy cow, people, this is how sensitive are these people? The Buttigieg's campaign focus on staff diversity resembles, on one level, efforts found at many organizations. But most campaigns are fast-growing, fast-moving enterprises that rarely have time or money for in-depth workplace self-assessments or extensive inclusion and training. Can you imagine if this dude got to the White House? The first thing they'd have to do is go back to calling it the executive mansion because it would be a microaggression for the people of color to work in the White House with the white guy. Some people have too much time on their hands. And when your campaign is flailing about, uh, you're you're going to have you're going to have some problems. Uh, Here's the reality. The Buttigieg campaign is a campaign run by a white gay millennial mayor who has no business running for president of the United States, but a bunch of rich white elitists like him because he makes them feel good about themselves. And it turns out he's been tone deaf in his own community, the concerns of minorities and black voters in South Carolina do not like him. They don't understand why this guy is running. And frankly, you know what his own research has said? And this has been so covered up by the media. There was one story in the media and they moved on from the story as quickly as they could. It turns out that one of the the chief liabilities for Pete Buttigieg is being gay, that black voters don't want to support a gay guy. And by the way, it has nothing to actually do with him being gay. The black voters in South Carolina, and again, this is Pete Buttigieg's own research. The black voters in South Carolina, they they don't have a problem with voting for a gay guy. They have a problem with voting for a gay guy who wants to make it part of his identity and put it in their face, and they don't want to see that. (gasps) These are black Democratic voters in South Carolina. In fact, they had millennials in the group, and the millennials agreed. The one person who was willing to give them the benefit of the doubt was like 60 years old, and the rest of them were like, nope, nope, not going to do it. He's got problems. And think of all the positive attention that Pete Buttigieg has gotten from the media over the last several months. 
Why has Pete Buttigieg gotten the media attention? One of the reasons, if you talk to reporters, is they say that Buttigieg, up until very recently, made himself so widely available. He's great for interviews. But notice the media. Andrew Yang did the same thing. But notice how the media gravitated to Pete Buttigieg and not Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang seems like the most likable person to ever run for president of the United States. But the media wanted to go for the gay millennial white dude from Indiana than for the, the Asian dude from California. Why exactly? Was that a microaggression to Andrew Yang by the by the media? Because there's a bunch of hypocritical BS in the media these days when it comes to diversity and inclusion. They love to talk a good game about diversity and inclusion, but you got a bunch of rich white people who like other rich white people who placate it to themselves, and they love that Pete Buttigieg can quote scripture and try to own the evangelicals. Never mind that he's getting it all wrong and is Episcopalian and clearly doesn't understand it. Oh, he can throw scripture in their face just like the devil did to Jesus in the wilderness. <gasps> he's one of us. It is at 38 years old running for president of the United States. The dude has no business running for president of the United States. And by the way, you know who is least likely to vote for Pete Buttigieg? His fellow millennials. That's right. Millennials don't like Pete Buttigieg. And do you know why the survey say millennials don't like Pete Buttigieg? Because he's a climber. Millennials don't like climbers. And the data overwhelmingly shows that Pete Buttigieg has essentially structured his life around the idea that he wanted to be president of the United States. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be president. I didn't want to be an astronaut, didn't want to be a firefighter, wanted to be president. And then one day it dawned on me that people who want to be president are sociopathic people who have no business being president. And I don't want to be one of those people, so I'm not going to strive my whole life to try to do something like that. Along comes Pete Buttigieg, and his career goal apparently is to be president of the United States. And you should never give the presidency to someone who from an early age has wanted to be president. Why? Because they're not real people. They have structured their entire life to be poll-tested, focus group approved. That's not a real person, and that's Pete Buttigieg's problem, is he doesn't really come across as an authentic, normal person on the campaign trail, and voters can smell the BS and the focus group preening from a mile away. And now at the end, his campaign is unraveling, and the, the people of color on his campaign feel like they're props to give his campaign legitimacy, and they don't want to be campaign props for Pete Buttigieg. And the story would not be coming out if the campaign were not falling apart. Remember a few months ago, the New York Times, not Reed Epstein, someone else from the New York Times, was running this lavish profile of Buttigieg, how he's raised all this money, and now he's going to prove that a data-driven, millennial-based campaign operation can beat the geriatrics in Iowa. He was going to turn out people like nobody's business because he was going to use data and he had a millennial presence and a millennial perspective. And they were going to have this mass movement in Iowa and he was going to win. It was all a bunch of campaign fluff. Pete Buttigieg has never been anything other than a candidate that rich white people like. If you go to the website, things white people like, I'm surprised Buttigieg isn't there because nobody else likes the guy except for rich 50 and 60 something people in the media who think he's something new and fresh when no, he's just another BS artist who focus grouped his way into power. You know, this just happened at the White House. Uh, let, let me pull up this audio. This is Kellyanne Conway uh, speaking in the White House. Well, let's For see. the first time in four no. years, life expectancy in the United States of America has increased. And for the first time in 29 years, the number of drug overdose deaths has decreased. This has not happened 
through coincidence, it's happened through causation. It's owing in large part to a whole of government approach to treat the whole person, led by President Trump, First Lady Melania Trump, and really the entire administration. You know, that, that's actually really good news. Uh, for the first time in three decades, the number of fatal drug overdoses has dropped and life expectancy is up. That, that actually is really good news. And they have really poured their heart and soul into uh, dealing with the opioid epidemic in this country. And, uh, you know, this administration, it, it's hard for the media to give credit to the Trump administration. I mean, for example, how many people said that there was going to be a mass outbreak of violence when we moved our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? I mean, that was the conventional wisdom. There were people, take Jen Rubin, the idiot at the Washington Post. Jen Rubin has been a staunch supporter of the idea of moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem for over a decade. And when Donald Trump did it, she attacked him. Now, she's not an intellectually honest person. She still calls herself a conservative, and she's not. Uh, but it, it was very typical of some of these people who just passionately hate the president and will never give him credit for stuff. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem, and we did not have a mass outbreak of violence. He killed Qasim Soleimani and all the conventional wisdom about mass outbreaks of violence did not pan out. Now, I still think Iran is taking its time to plot something, but the, the overwhelming um, mass outbreaks of violence and whatnot that people predicted did not happen. All of the bad things that were supposed to happen by pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord didn't happen. And the president can't get credit for any of this stuff because the media is so hostile to him. And along comes this president and first lady, and they care deeply about the opioid crisis. If there's one thing that everyone should be able to agree on with this president, because of what happened to his brother, Fred, this president has long cared very, very deeply about the opioid crisis. And they came up with a new approach to tackling the opioid crisis. Kelly and Conway came on my show and talked about it a couple of months ago. And getting people attention, uh, raising awareness with doctors, uh, curtailing the ability to doctor shop, uh, finding alternative pain medicine so that people didn't develop opioid addiction, and it's been working. The other thing they've been doing is they've been boosting jobs in Appalachia where the opioid crisis has, has really gotten out of control. So for the first time in 30 years, life expectancy is up, opioid addiction is down. And it is a direct response to an aggressive action by the president of the United States, whether you want to give him credit for it or not. It's the truth. And he does deserve credit. Good for them. Good for them. Now, before I get out of here, I, I got to do any of you people have sub sandwiches for the Super Bowl? Because we're a Georgia show right now. We, we, we intend to stretch beyond the state line here soon. Uh, but I, there's a map that's circulating on social media of the number one food for Super Bowl, and in Georgia, allegedly, it's a sub sandwich. 
I have been to plenty of Super Bowl parties in my life in Georgia, and I have never encountered a sub sandwich as the as the party favor at a Super Bowl party, which, again, I mean, I think this is just fake news. Buffalo dip reigns supreme in New England and sub sandwich in Georgia and and in Texas. It's chill. I know I can believe Texas and the upper Midwest. It's all chilly. But uh, what a bunch of garbage uh, to suggest that the number one dish to serve at a Super Bowl party in Georgia is a submarine sandwich. I have never encountered that in my life. It is fake news garbage. Oh, and by the way, PETA wants to swap out the groundhog for a robot because it's animal cruelty.